The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. To tackle climate change, we'll have to put our faith in technologies that don't yet exist. That's the premise for today's conversation. I'm Azim Azar. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. Renewables are booming. In fact, solar is the fastest growing energy technology in history. Why isn't this record-breaking growth enough to bring us to net zero? It turns out that some of the cornerstones of our modern life are big ticket items when it comes to carbon pollution. More than 30% of emissions come from making steel, chemicals, cement and food. So how do we keep what we need and take out the carbon? This challenge requires new solutions. I've come to Silicon Valley to meet Vinod Kosler, a venture capitalist who has made himself and his investors billions of dollars. He's pouring that cash into technologies that sound like science fiction, synthetic meat, fermented jet fuel and nuclear fusion. All of them huge bets to help solve the biggest problem humanity has ever faced. Now, when I first met you more than a quarter of a century ago, Vinod, you were really well known as a technology investor in traditional IT. You had built Sun Microsystems, you had invested in computer networking, Juniper, which returned two and a half thousand times its original investment to its investors, and one of the first internet search engines, Excite. But in recent years, you've got a reputation in a new area, which is funding entrepreneurs who are building. Now, when I first met you more than a quarter of a century ago, Vinod, you were really well known as a technology investor in traditional IT. You had built Sun Microsystems, you had invested in computer networking, Juniper, which returned two and a half thousand times its original investment to its investors, and one of the first internet search engines, Excite. But in recent years, you've got a reputation in a new area, which is funding entrepreneurs who are building hard technologies to tackle climate change. So it feels like there was a realization, a realization that climate change was a real problem. Can you talk me through how you came to that realization? Well, the first time I started thinking about climate was in the late 90s, seriously. And I realized we had a large problem. About 10% of the world's population, 700 million people or so, had a rich lifestyle. Rich in education, rich in medicine, rich in housing, rich in transportation, rich in energy in every way. 7 billion people wanted it. Mm -hmm. And when I did the math, the math didn't work. 10 times more steel, 10 times more cement, 10 times more doctors, 10 times more... 10 times more meat. 10 times more meat. Right. All those were intractable problems with a linear approach to life. And I decided to work on technology multipliers. Can you substitute for more steel with technology? Yes. Mm -hmm. Could you do housing differently with technology? Yes. 
Could you produce more doctors with technology? And I don't mean human doctors, AI doctors, yes. Could you build teachers with AI to be personal coaches for every student on the planet affordably? And all this has to be done accessibly and affordably. Well, it sounds like there are two dimensions there. One part is this dimension of how do you deliver equal prosperity to all of humanity, not just the richest 10%. And then the second question is, how do you do it within the envelope that is the capabilities and the resources of the, the biosphere, specifically you know, our carbon budget? Mm -hmm. Coming to that first question, I'm curious as someone who is an immigrant to the United States, you, you grew up in, in, in India. Do you think that having come from one of the poorer countries at the time in the world, that plays a part in your calculus of the rest of humanity, the other 90%? Oh, absolutely. Uh, first, I'd say hard problems are really fun to work on right. because they're a real challenge and everybody assumes they can't be done. Mm -hmm. But on climate, there were technology approaches that made the world a better place mm -hmm. and that were much more tractable for my skill set of technology-based innovation. One of the ways I think about technology is that technology is things getting cheaper. When people think about that technology, they think it's a, a widget like this tablet that I've got here, or it's a computer, or it's a car. But the heart of technology is that unlike so many of the other things we experience in the world, it gets cheaper every single year. And that means it's democratic, it's also inclusive. And the last time that I traveled to India, the thing that you note is that everyone there has a supercomputer because they all have smartphones. How should we think about that in terms of climate technologies? I had this view that no large innovation ever comes from an institution of any sort. The institutional system, whether it's large companies, academics, other places, they're great at extrapolating the past not inventing the future they want. Because inventing the future you want involves much more innovation, mm -hmm. which means much more risk and much more probability of failure. So very large innovations right. only come from the entrepreneurial world. Could you imagine somebody at Hyatt or Hilton doing Airbnb? Could you imagine somebody at Hertz or Avis doing Uber? Say. Uber? Yeah. Could you imagine somebody at Walmart or Target do Amazon? Mm -hmm. Could you imagine anybody at Boeing or Lockheed or Airbus do rockets like right. Rocket Lab or SpaceX have done? Could you imagine, uh, why didn't Fox and NBC or CBS do media? It was Twitter and YouTube and Netflix and Facebook. Right. People, they, they didn't know they were in the media business. So large innovation. Yeah. only comes from these big players. And frankly, the internet itself, in 1996, when we started Juniper, every major telco player told me they would never use TCP IP right. in the public internet. So TCP IP being the technical standard that makes the internet work and makes it different mm -hmm. to the old phone lines that had served us yeah. very well for 100 years. So these internet technology was taboo in the telecom world, and no telecom player wanted it. They wanted an alternative. The buzzword was ATM. Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. ATM technology. A Asynchronous transfer mode. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And when we started Juniper, 
every player told us never. And Cisco, which was the purveyor of internet technology, said they would never do a router for the public internet. Never. That was a direct quote from the CTO of Cisco to me. Yeah. Back in It's 19- kind of their business now, though, isn't it? It is everybody's <laughs> business. Yeah. My point is, you have to take these large risks. And yeah. we did say, we will we'll build it, and they will come. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, this particular episode was a very large return for Kleiner Perkins when I was there, 2,500x, about $7 billion in profit on a $3 or $4 million investment. It's not bad. Not bad. Makes up for a lifetime of other losses <laughs> and stupid things I've done in my life. There's a very interesting parallel between that story of early internet technologies and I think what you have said about technology and climate change. One of the things that you've argued is that even though we've seen tremendous progress in the spread of solar power and wind power and electric vehicles in the cold country of Norway, 95% of new cars are electric. In China's enormous car market, 25% of cars sold today are electric. Despite all that progress, that these proven technologies will not be sufficient for us to reach net zero emissions by 2050, and that we need to take bets on big, unproven technologies. Why do you think that's the case? Why can't we get there with what we already have and what is already proven to be growing exponentially? I use a term called the Chindia price, the price at which India and China would adapt the technology. And that's the price at which these technologies are cheaper than their fossil alternatives. They may not be day one, but they have to get there where they're cheaper than coal-based power plants or natural gas-based power plants or coal, natural regular cement mm-hmm. or regular steel. So these alternatives have to be cheaper than their fossil alternatives. And the good news is there's only a dozen things that matter. There's a dozen things that are very large emitters of carbon. Mm-hmm. And if we fix those dozen, we solve the problem. Right. If we don't fix those dozen, we will have a problem, no matter what else we do. So, and those dozen are things like steel, where we produce steel, billions of cement, tons of cement, aviation fuel, industrial he, heat, domestic industrial heat, heat, HVAC, uh, air conditioning in people's homes. So, it's all the big emitters. Agriculture is a big one. So, animal protein and nitrogen fertilizer. So there's a dozen of these that are very, very important to solve in the bulk of the emissions. If we solve this, I think the climate problem is done. Right. Which leads me to the most exciting part of this. And my view is we only need a dozen people, which I call instigators, to instigate the change in each of these areas. Good example, there was no chance Uh, Anybody at General Motors or Volkswagen or your favorite company was going to make electric cars happen. Mm -hmm. But Elon Musk didn't know the electric car business, so he made it happen, starting from first principles. Right. And taking a lot of hubris, a lot of risk, a lot of... A lot of criticism as well. A lot of criticism, near bankruptcy bankruptcy, a few times. Yeah. It is hard. I guess your argument would be that Because of the 90%, the 90% poorest on the planet who expect to have a better quality of life, we can't stop 
the investment in people's own prosperity. And so the only way you square that circle is through technology, which is things getting cheaper. Yeah. And that's why we need to pick off these dozen problem areas in parallel. And the mechanism that you have seen work both in renewables and decarbonization recently, but also through the internet has been the instigator. Yes. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. So Elon Musk, without Elon Musk, we wouldn't be on the path to electrification yeah. today. Whether you like him or not, whether he succeeds or fails, he has changed the worldview. The same has happened with somebody like Pat Brown. With meat, right? With Pat meat. Brown, is, he does the impossible burger. When Pat started, when we invested in impossible foods about a little more than 10 years ago, it was definitely not an area people invested in. And people asked me, what are you doing investing in hamburgers? <laughs> but it was this sustainability objective of reducing emissions from meat production the traditional way. And right. he actually uses traditional plant proteins plus heme, which is a brewed protein, brewed just like your beer, which is the blood component of it that gives it all the taste. Now, no food company would have done that. So we've got electric vehicles and we've got burgers that are, can replace the traditional beef burger. What are three or four other problem areas that you're finding exciting? So long time ago, we invested in Lanzatag. Jennifer Holmgren is trying to change aviation fuel to a sustainable aviation fuel. In fact, the goal is to produce it eventually from municipal waste. So municipal waste to aviation fuel would solve the carbon emissions from aviation. That's a really big example. Now, we invest in Commonwealth Fusion Systems. When I met Bob uh, Mumgard, he was just a senior fellow at the MIT Plasma Fusion Lab mm -hmm. and thinking about starting this company. And we helped him get going. And if we get fusion, if you're right, we will have fusion for the planet and reliable energy. Now, solar and wind are great. They've done very well. But you don't want to watch your football game only when the sun's shining and, or the wind's blowing. Right. Al Gore is just wrong on the cost of solar power. Solar power that's reliable and available when you want to watch your football game, not when the sun's shining, is much more expensive today and not practical. Well, I was going to say, though, that, of course, you've also backed uh, Jagdeep Singh, who makes batteries with QuantumScape. So potentially you could put Jagdeep's batteries and other storage solutions with solar and wind, and we can then have that consistency. Like even we are taking alternative approaches to the same problems. Right. So we may have a battery solution, and we have multiple battery solutions. And I'm very optimistic about deep geothermal which would make geothermal power 100 times more available if you could drill deep enough. And my dream would be to drill right under coal plants and tap 400 degree heat under the coal plant so we get heat and replace the coal without replacing the coal plant. So we have millimeter wave drilling, just like a microwave oven wow. heating to do deep drilling as an effort. So I'm saying just because we're doing fusion doesn't mean we aren't doing geothermal also and batteries for storage so solar power becomes reliable. There, uh, there is so much technology in here. This almost feels like 
science fiction. It's pretty remarkable and it does feel that these are unproven. So if I was a policymaker or just a concerned parent, I'd need some assuaging that we could rely on these bets. How will we know they could even pay off? Uncertainty is a critical part of what we need to deal with. I would say only the improbables are important because it's the only way to do this technology multiplication so all 7 billion people can enjoy the lifestyle of the richest 700 million. So we have to take risks. Now, what is the solution if Commonwealth fusion doesn't work and geothermal heat doesn't work? There's 10 other fusion efforts that others are doing, and I'm very, very glad that others are doing it. And not only did Bob Mumgard, who's a real instigator in fusion, he's instigated a dozen other people to start other efforts. Right, so competitors with different technical and yeah. scientific approaches. Not only that, we just invested last week in a new effort called Rialto Fusion, right. where Bob is helping them build the magnets for his competitor in fusion. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk about fusion power, which is really from the realms of science fiction. You have backed a founder called Bob Mungard, who was an academic. He was up at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and his business, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, CFS. Now, fusion is a really difficult technical problem. It involves getting a plasma of rare gases up to temperatures many, many thousands of times hotter than the center of the sun, containing that, controlling it, and then somehow extracting useful electricity from it, and doing that all safely in an industrial-sized unit somewhere. So how do you even go about addressing that problem? Well, they think logically in small chunks. So we raised the first $100 million for Commonwealth Fusion with an odd argument that if we built a 20 Tesla magnet, which was a key risk in getting to real fusion, if fusion didn't work, we could use the magnets for nuclear medicine, for example, in your local hospital. So there were other uses for these strong magnets, MRI machines, power lines, nuclear medicine. But, but let's be clear, you're talking about a 20 Tesla magnet here for fusion, whereas a high-end MRI machine might have a three Tesla magnet. And this is orders of magnitude, right? From three to four to five to 20. It's not just six times more, it's 17 orders of magnitude yep. more, more powerful. So we, we are, we're talking about a really significant increment the thing to understand about magnets, for example, and this was a key realization, the size of a fusion reactor will become scale inversely with the fourth power of the magnet strength. So if you go from five Tesla magnet to 20 Tesla, 
your fusion reactor will be 250 times smaller. Think about it. Right. That not only makes it manageable, constructible fast, changeable fast, makes, much lower cost, It makes affordable. it modular. And so with the modularity, you can string these things together. You increase volumes. When you increase volumes, you improve learning rates. So your unit cost comes down. It's what we did with silicon chips. Yes. Right. Not only that, high temperature semiconductors were developing and they enabled these high magnets. Transition in one technology in high-temperature superconductors allowed for high Tesla magnets, which allowed for fusion. But high-temperature semiconductors are enabled, and in fact, can be dirt cheap if you use the solar technologies, thin-film solar technologies mm -hmm. that are used to make solar cells. Right. So those same semiconductor processes could make high-temperature superconductor tape which would make magnets stronger and cheaper and much more scalable in high volume. So, and this is an important point. When you put all these together, the idea of solar technologies being used to make superconductor tape, used to make magnets that are very, very strong, which make fusion mm. reactors really much, much smaller, 250 right. times smaller is a big deal. Yeah. But let me go even further. There's a beautiful plan Bob and I have talked about, and everybody says, you can't build 5,000 power plants, regulation, right. permitting, all grid connections. This is much simpler entrepreneurial solution to this. We won't build fusion plants. We'll take coal plants and replace the coal boiler with a fusion boiler and let the plant be. Provided you can get the size down. Provided we can get the size down, which we are pretty sure will be the same size or smaller than a boiler. If I might spend one more minute on this analogy, because this is where experts are almost always wrong. Right. And that's why they've not participated in any large innovations. Experts at big energy companies like GE or Siemens or mm -hmm. uh, experts at Volkswagen or GM. They don't think nonlinearly. I say all this to you and say, how are you going to build that many fusion reactors? Let me give you the following analogy. In the Second World War, there were five Liberty ships built in the United States in the 10 years before the Second World War started. Right. The next five years, we built close to 5,000 Liberty ships. If we can do that, can we build 5,000 fusion reactors using high-volume technologies like solar manufacturing? Yeah. No question we can. Mm -hmm. I think the pundits are fundamentally wrong about these things. Well, there's something that I really like about the way that you tell this story, because the beauty about the impossible is that sometimes we've done the impossible before. If you think about the magical things that we do with semiconductors, extreme ultraviolet lasers, the vibration-free factories that are the size of aircraft hangars but with cleaner air than operating theatres, this would have all seemed like science fiction in 1960 or 1970 when silicon chips were starting to become an industrial product. And of course, history only ever rhymes, it doesn't repeat, but we do have some precedent of achieving these improbable outcomes. This is why I say improbables are not unimportant. In fact, the only things that are important, and we just gotta take enough shots so that some of these improbables happen in these dozen areas to solve climate change. The climate change problem is really 
significant. We can't get there with our existing sets of technologies, and we need to find some unproven technologies that will be supported by these key instigators, these characters with certain qualities to make the improbable happen. But there's still this question, I suppose, of scale and the billions of tons of steel and cement and so on. And 2050 is only less than three decades away. How do you actually get to that scale? I could see that through these exponentials, these technologies could get cheaper very, very quickly, and we could start to build them in great quantities. But that in of itself doesn't get you there by 2050, right? It might get you there by 2070 or 2090. Is it going to involve government incentives or interventions of some sort or some other magical thinking? So, so those kinds of claims yeah. are the purview of experts and gurus right. and pundits who pontificate but don't actually do things. Scaling is a much easier problem. If I've reduced fusion to replacing 5,000 coal boilers and natural gas boilers in the United States, that's a very solvable problem. I just gave you the math we right. did with Liberty Warships. Yeah. That becomes a scalable problem. So do we have to demonstrate a power plant by the early 30s? Yes. Do we need to build 10 or 20 in the 30s? Yes. That then sets us up starting in 2040 to really scale it in the next five years to every plant in the US and in India and China will meet the Chindia price. Because these are semiconductor-like technologies from solar power generation, we've seen what that cost has done. So that's scalable. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to governments though, because we do have governments and they do play a role. The Liberty Warship example you gave out was of course a government initiative. And many of the core technologies of the internet started as government-funded initiatives. And we've seen how government interventions can transform industries. So, for example, the arrival of the Environmental Protection Agency drove down vehicle tailpipe emissions successfully over 30 or 40 years. So in your picture of improbable, difficult, yet-to-scale technologies that are required over the next 20 or 30 years, what role should governments play? Well. Government has an important role to play. I'm talking about a lot of technologies. We had the initial cost of the first plant, the first five plants, the first 10 plants, are, is above the cost of the fossil competitors. Mm -hmm. So subsidies do play a role. Unfortunately, subsidies get locked in instead of being declining with scale or time. And right. they always should decline with scale and time. But it's very important to get these nascent technologies started because they have a premium cost, which Bill Gates calls the green premium, yeah. that has to be covered by somebody and governments can cover it till it gets to scale. No yeah. reason for subsidies on solar or wind today. Absolutely. They're cheap enough. So a government could step in with some time-limited declining subsidies in order to drive those technologies down the cost curve so a market can form. The thing about that policy that I find so interesting is that it should appeal to those on the left of the economic spectrum because it democratizes technology, making it affordable for smaller firms and for mm -hmm. households across every country and in every country. And it should appeal to those on the right of the economic spectrum because by having that early intervention, you create a market which entrepreneurs can then occupy and build businesses around. So it appears to be a policy that should 
appeal to both the left and the right. Why do we not see more of that policy cropping up in the United States and across Europe? The people on the right have generally not liked the idea of any government intervention in anything. And to be honest, this kind of approach will disrupt the traditional business in each of these areas. And so there will be losers. It's not a lot of fun if you're the disrupted party. Right. One has to remember, somebody gets disrupted. Yeah. It's traditionally the old line players who are not innovating, and they're the traditional constituency of the right, and have the loudest voice. People expect General Motors or General Electric or Siemens to have more clout and say in these arguments. Mm. We've seen that with AT&T trying to control the internet. Of course. We've talked about these magical unproven technologies from fusion to novel steels and cements and so on. What do you think are the chances that we can get to a global net zero by 2050 off the back of these radical and unproven technologies? I would put it the following way we will have the ability to get to global net zero. Whether we do it or not is a political question. Technology is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. There's other factors like politics. It's not very fun being disrupted. This is why from my point of view, if we can build fusion boilers and get the coal power plant industry and the natural gas power plant industry behind us, the people who own those plants, so their value doesn't go to zero, they are our partners. We're doing that in cement. A plant that'll come online next few months in Redding, California, just north of here. So a cement plant where an auxiliary product is the carbon captured as product. So the total capacity of the existing cement plant will actually go up and the old product will just be lower carbon because the carbon's been put into new carbonates that make more cement. Beautiful idea, if you can repurpose an existing cement plant, it becomes easier to get the incumbents. They're disrupted along and will accelerate the process. And easier then to build the coalition that we need to the tackle political huge, side of things. Tackle this huge problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Vinod, thank you so much for sharing this wisdom with me today. I really have appreciated it. It's been fun. Thank you. Reflecting on my conversation with Vinod, I'm struck by three things. Firstly, he puts an awful lot of importance on the idea of the instigator, the individual who can have an outsized impact. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Think about Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. The second thing he does is he can visualize the potential of the improbable or the highly unlikely. He can paint a picture of the future when these technologies get real. But then finally, he brings it back down to something more prosaic. We just need to get going. And if we get going, we might finally get there. Thanks for listening to The Exponentially Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially Podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. Mm -hmm.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.